And I've always had this philosophy that if the city management profession really wants to live up to its code of ethics, that we have to provide managers not only to the, to the cities that are easy to manage, but we have to provide managers to the cities that aren't. Well, welcome back to the Public Money Pod, the podcast about the $4 trillion that state and local governments spend each year, production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy. And of course, we're sponsored by Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association. I'm Justin Marlowe, joined as always by my co-host, Bonafide Fiscal Policy wonk, Liz Farmer. Liz, welcome back. Thanks, Justin. And as we speak, I'm watching the last remnants of a, a surprise March snow. I wouldn't call it a snowstorm, but a snow um, incident <laughs> from this morning. It's all just about melted away, but woke up to a beautiful winter wonderland, like just the snow kind of softly blanketing everything. It looked like a postcard. Yeah, it's lovely. And we did a similar thing in Chicago, I think the Midwest generally this, this winter. It was kind of slow start and a lot of rain and a lot of sleet through the what would normally be the the winter wonderland time of the year and now in the last you know three weeks or so there's been a lot of snow and a lot of winter kind of coming on late and uh, that sometimes that happens um and of course here that can happen until uh, about the fourth of july if, if you're lucky <laughs> so we, we, we just kind of it's going to sit back and, and watch. <laughs> hey, but you did have that 70 degree day back in November. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, everything's kind of kind of shifted uh, for, for better or for worse. So we're uh, talking today about financial leadership and, uh, and kind of a particular form of financial leadership. That is financial leadership that's done in financially stressful, uh, fiscally strained jurisdictions is certainly a a theme that both of us have, have looked at quite a bit in our careers, and in particular, Liz, have done a lot of reporting, including some recent reporting on this. And we're really fortunate to have uh, our, our guest is Mark Scott, longtime city manager uh, throughout the country, but particularly in Southern California. He has been the manager in uh, places that are about as different as you might think, places like Beverly Hills, uh, places like the city of Downey, places like the city of Indio, and in particular, San Bernardino, California, where he was the manager during uh, their bankruptcy and, and some really fiscally stressful times. So he's going to tell us some of his insights on that experience and what it means to do financial leadership when you are in those uniquely stressful situations. So, so Liz, you've done quite a bit of work on this over time, and including some recent reporting that gets into the uh, kind of the, in so many ways, the non-financial factors that lead up to these financial problems. There's always a story that involves people and institutions and priority setting. You know, as you're thinking about uh, some of your recent work on this, especially, what are uh, some of those sort of non-financial factors that that uh, force us to ultimately have to deal with these major financial problems? Yeah, I mean, uh, politics, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, our our democracy and our elected our elected structure is is wonderful, but it also causes a lot of problems when it comes to responsible financial decision making. You know, finances are, I mean, quite obviously, such a crucial part of running a government, and yet there are not a lot of people who can really get into the nitty gritty. Not a lot of elected officials who 
um, who have, have the background uh, to get into the nitty gritty of, of public finance and how things are funded, or who, who might be interested, but uh, just don't have the time. And it's up to city officials and our city staff in particular to, to tell these stories and to translate this really arcane stuff into usable information for elected officials who are policymakers. And I think that that translation into, okay, what does this, what does all this stuff on the paper mean for my district in terms of the, uh, the vacant lots, in terms of all these policy priorities, it's that that process of getting from one place to another is, is so critical and, and really, really hard, hard to do in a clear and concise way. And I've talked to a lot of people over the years about this idea of storytelling in public policy and in particular in public finance. Um, I even think there was recently a story on Route 50 about storytelling um, for, in terms of city managers too, but that it, it's, it sounds, I don't know, kind of maybe storytelling makes it sound really trivial, but that is that is how you get your message across. That's how you ultimately get your priorities going and, and therefore the money for them is that really, you know, the, the ability to distill what your needs are and, and how that relates to um, a city budget and revenues, all of that stuff, that, that translation is pretty tough. Yeah, for sure. It, it's the old saying is that people don't run for elected office to, uh, cut budgets and pour over revenue forecasts and, and get involved in the arcane technocratic work of budgeting and finance. They, they run for office because they want to make a difference in their communities. And yet so much of the important work of having the resources to do the things that you want to do in your communities comes from understanding where the money comes from and where the money goes, or at least being able to ask the, the right questions and have a, a right sense of, of what that story is and what you want that story to be. And sometimes there's a real gap there and it's mm -hmm. a real challenge. We've both spent a lot of time in our own work trying to bridge that gap, but uh, as these things get more and more complicated and, and as we have uh, lots of challenges ongoing in that space, so it's uh, definitely something that we will probably continue to work on and definitely something that's going to require uh, some really special leadership in some cases, especially when you get into some financially, really truly financially challenging circumstances. Well, we are pleased to welcome to the Public Money Pod, Mark Scott, who's recently coming off his stint as Interim city manager in Downey, California, longtime city manager, including in uh, several places in California you've heard of, Beverly Hills in particular. Really pleased to have you uh, on the podcast, Mark. Thanks for taking the time. Happy to be here. Mark, yeah, it's great to have you. And we've met several years ago. Um, gosh, I think back when you were city manager of San Bernardino, um, which I think, let's see, by my count is one, two, three, four cities ago now for you. <laughs> You've managed a total. I think Downey was your ninth city, if if, I'm, if that's correct, with Beverly Hills being your first. That's yeah. right. Um, and so what was it like in Beverly Hills? Uh, and And what kind of... <laughs> Maybe not financial problems, but perhaps other other challenges might might have come your way there. Well, I was um, I was fortunate early in my career to end up in a position like Beverly Hills. You're supposed to end your career in Beverly Hills, not start there. And um, so I had 
I had 20 very interesting years. And people always ask me, it must be hard to work with wealthy people like that. And in fact, that wasn't what I found at all. I found that uh, people tend to judge themselves by what their neighbors have or what their neighbors expect. And so in Beverly Hills, it really functioned pretty much like every other city in terms of people's expectations. Now, they had higher in many cases, they had life experiences that caused them to demand quality levels that were higher, but we had a budget for higher quality levels, so that was okay. But we did, we had some interesting times there. I was in Beverly Hills during the LA riots, and that really changed my life, really, in many ways. I was there for major earthquakes, and I was there for some interesting. Um, frustrating uh, racial profiling um, cases. Uh, so it was an, an interesting, I was city manager for 14 of the 20 years, and it was, an, it was certainly an interesting place. Uh, to follow up, is I going to go the LA riots, which you know, for a lot of our listeners probably seems like ancient history now. Uh, you'd say a little bit more about that experience, because having known lots of people who were managing in Southern California in particular at that time, they, they've called it a, a formative experience for them too and a real turning point. What about that specifically changed the, the way that you were thinking about the work of city management? It really highlighted the fact that when you're working for cities, you have these boundaries um, that are really artificial. It became very obvious that Los Angeles is this big, giant metropolis was was going to have to figure out how better to uh, work person to person. The LA riots afterwards, there was such a feeling, almost a sick feeling that we hadn't done enough and that it wasn't just the events of the riot that caused all this, but it was years and years of lead up um, that then just blew. But for a lot of people, hopefully leadership people, um, it was a it was a call a call to action to find out how we can do more to connect with one another. And so, sitting in Beverly Hills, where it's perceived that we sit behind a moat, and in some respects maybe we did, it was an opportunity to to reach out beyond that. And through just happenstance, I got involved with some people in. Uh, South Central Los Angeles um, and LA Unified School District, just little little roles that I got to do that broadened my horizons. And um, not only do I think it helped Beverly Hills to have that broader view, but it certainly helped me and it changed the whole course of my career. Speaking of leadership, Liz has called you a, a fix-it city manager. And that's, uh, I think, one of the main things we want to discuss with you here today, kind of what that has meant for city management generally, and, and especially city management in financially challenged jurisdictions. This is, after all, the, the public money pod. So our, our listeners are very interested in the financial side of this. When you think of a, a fix-it city manager, what has that meant to you in the, in the course of uh, playing that role in different jurisdictions? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to thank Liz for having put that <laughs> label on me. Um, it, it, uh, every interview I've had since, and as Liz noted, I've had several, um, that comes up 
because people today do internet searches and they find that article <laughs> and immediately people have this expectation of me as the fix it manager. Um, when I look at it, what's, what's happened to me is that after the 20 years in Beverly Hills, I decided that um, that wasn't how I wanted to define my career, uh, being, being in one city and, and a city perceived as, as having fewer problems that I wanted to do other kinds of management. Um, I had found myself into the um, surprising circumstance of being a committee chair for the NAACP and the Hollywood Beverly Hills chapter, which was a joy for me. I'm not sure I was any good at it, but it was a joy for me. Um, so I started looking where else I could go and what else I could do. And I've, I maybe stumbled into this role of going to cities that really needed some help. And I've always had this philosophy that if the city management profession really wants to live up to its code of ethics, that we have to provide managers not only to, to the cities that are easy to manage, but we have to provide managers to the cities that aren't. And so I've actually sought out those other kinds of opportunities. And one of those um, dropped me into San Bernardino at the time of the, the bankruptcy. And, and that was intentional. I mean, I, I chose to go there because I felt someone from our profession needed to, to help the city that was four years in the longest municipal bankruptcy in the city's or in city history. So um, a lot more learning occurred every time I went into one of those positions. I mean, San Bernardino, yes, was in Chapter 9 bankruptcy. What in particular about it appealed to you? And I mean, what what did you, did you come in with ideas? Was there some, an agenda or some sort of goal you specifically had in mind there in terms of the city's finances? Yeah, absolutely. I, I had previously been um, city manager in my hometown of Fresno during the downturn. And everybody expected Fresno to follow San Bernardino and Stockton into bankruptcy. Everybody, including our banker, um, who would call me literally every week in Fresno to have an update on what we were doing um, so that they wouldn't be surprised someday by an announcement. So when I got to San Bernardino, I'd actually studied bankruptcy quite a bit, um, what had been done in, in Stockton and Detroit. So I came in there with the idea that along with a, a lot of good people in San Bernardino, along with some very good and expensive consultants who got paid a whole heck of a lot more than I did, that we would uh, try to put together a plan that the bankruptcy judge would accept to, to get out. And that was that was tough because, for instance, when I got there, we were four years behind in doing annual comprehensive uh, financial reports and just finding the files that are appropriate for any particular year was a trick. So um, we, our strategy was on the one front to work on the financial side to get the records straight, to get a real solid 20-year financial forecast that the bankruptcy court would accept. And then on on another front, we had a governance problem in San Bernardino that had been part of the problem. San Bernardino had an elected mayor, 
an elected city attorney um, who historically had not gotten along with each other, whoever was in those roles. And it had a broken structure where no one really took leadership. Um, so we had to change the governance structure at the same time we were trying to get out of bankruptcy. And uh, we did. Um, so it was a lot of work by a lot of people. I played a small part, but we got we got out finally. How much of that was uh, labor? I mean, certainly that's been the story in a lot of these other California bankruptcies is you know, either bad relations with labor or, or just tensions generally. Was that uh, part of the equation for you there as well? Um, no, actually, I don't think it was that bad. We, we, had some, um, we had some challenges because of the bankruptcy, of course. The, the city ended up contracting out the fire department, fire function, and, and actually annexed them to the county fire district. Um, and that was not a popular move for the members of the fire department, but they did it. Um, and it got done with the other labor groups. There was just long, long detailed negotiations as to where there would be impairment on their contracts and where there wouldn't. Ironically, the bankruptcy started when the city stopped making payments to the California public retirement system, CalPERS. And you can't do that. We learned that you can't mess with CalPERS. And when they quit making the payments, CalPERS said they would quit making payments to the retirees, which was not a, a good thing. So we, um, we had to negotiate a lot of impairment with a lot of different groups, but CalPERS was not one of them. Um, CalPERS held firm and that didn't end up being impaired. But um, overall, the labor groups, I, they were actually heroes to me. They, they hung in there with us. On the point about just assembling the the financial information and having getting that part of the record straight, you know how much of that was a sort of a people problem versus a, a systems and an IT problem? Yeah, it was definitely both. When you go into bankruptcy, the first thing that happens is you lose half your people. <clears throat> so there was no um, organizational memory when it came to financial records. We had some mid-level employees who stuck with us, but not, not all that many. To make it worse, they brought in some consultants who didn't know what they were doing, and they started working on some of this, and the records were really askew. It was, it was a real problem. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty much all of the above. It was people problem, technology problem. We were way behind in technology upgrades. So it was roll up your sleeves time. Did did people quit? Just to clarify on the the losing half your people, did did they quit or or was that due to layoffs? No, they quit. <laughs> we didn't have to do a whole lot of layoffs because there were so many people that that took off. Yeah, it, when people start thinking that their retirement isn't going to work, um, they bail. Mm. Uh, you know, Calpers, of course, you can take your retirement time with you. But people started thinking that their retirement time would, would be impaired. It would be cut back in terms of its value. And um, people took off in a hurry. And you couldn't hire new. That was the biggest problem 
is, you know, how many people like me were foolish enough to think that this was a good place to go work during a bankruptcy. So it was very hard to find great people to come in to help. We did have great consultants at, at great cost, but it was very hard to hire employees. Um, so I'll, I'll ask this question and Eric can decide whether or not we're spending too much time on it. Um, but the, the issue of, of the fire department, um, I'm curious because that I, I remember that that was a, a really, really tough thing to do. Very controversial. W yeah. Was there like a, a particular turning point in which uh, that started to become a possibility? I don't think there was ever a happy moment. <laughs> you know, it was it, it just had become so obvious that the city couldn't afford its fire function anymore. We we had old stations that were completely run down. We had equipment that was going to stop working. And of course, the employees knew that at some point they might not get paid. So it was it was dangerous. You know, the fire situation, they have fires in San Bernardino. I'm, you know, it's a a town that that wasn't well maintained for many years and codes weren't kept up and um, so it became a dangerous situation where there really wasn't much choice but to to hook up with um, San Bernardino County which then could afford to put the resources into it but we more than that we had to go to the voters and actually um, increase the uh, tax that went into the fire district. And the, the city, unfortunately, then had to agree to provide a big chunk of its property tax every year to the county for the fire function. So in many respects, what we got rid of in San Bernardino was the future cost of, of upgrading and maintaining a fire department. But we also got rid of the current revenue that went along with it. That alone didn't solve San Bernardino's long-term problems. It just got rid of a future problem and made the bankruptcy court more willing to let us out of bankruptcy. Keeping it in San Bernardino County for a moment, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask on behalf of my 14-year-old if you could tell us a little bit about Indio and the public finance of Coachella, <laughs> and in particular, the uh, managing that through the pandemic, right? Because I'm such a a huge attraction to get shut down. Oh yeah. Uh, were you able to, to, to deal with that? Or is, is Coachella as big a deal to the public finance of that part of the country as it might seem just from the outside? Yeah. Coachella is gigantic in terms of its financial impact on that part of Riverside County. Literally the uh, pandemic hit about a month or month and a half before Coachella was scheduled to start. And it came as a shock to, to a lot of people. But for the city itself, maybe not as much as people thought. Um, the Coachella Festival probably earns the city of, of Indio about $5 million a year. And um, on a budget that's, that's probably, I forget now, but probably in the 80 to $90 million range, that mattered, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't fatal. Um, but for all of those vendors and all of those people who work there for three or four or even maybe two months of time getting ready for Coachella, that was a big blow. Then we lost it again the next year. The 
the world wasn't ready to to start again. It was it was hard at the time. Um, what I mean, are there any lessons or themes or, or or particular commonalities between cities other than them being in California that uh, that draw you to them? I think in in those four cities, there's a lot of difference. Um, they're they're certainly not the same challenge. In fact, in some ways, quite different. There are commonalities, of course. In each of those cases, there was um, ongoing need to do more and better public engagement. It was also, I think, interesting to me, the learning of um, how much people don't really understand their financial status. Um, elected officials in in particular don't come into office having taken degrees in being a council member. Um, they have to learn what they're doing and financial records are really complicated to understand. People think the budget is the the financial health document of a city and it's not. It's a resource allocation policy document. It's the financial records that are the financial health uh, indicator and people don't know how to read those. I mean, I, I would be surprised if 1% of the council members in this country have ever really read their annual financial reports. Um, they read the, the cover letter and that's about as far as they go because they don't know how. And I don't blame them for not knowing how. So in each of those cities, it was always a challenge to get into the records and really find out what they said. And I found very different answers in different cities. Lincoln, California, I love Lincoln, California. What a great place it is to live. Um, but Lincoln is growing way faster than they know how to, how to cope with. And the financial records would tell you that if you really looked at them carefully. And um, so each of my cities have had a little different circumstance. In Downey, it was governance. And the governance structure was just broken. And, um, and for me, I ended up almost being a babysitter at times. I probably shouldn't have used that term, but it, <laughs> it's, it was a, a role where I was just trying to hold people's hands to get them through one period of time to another politically until the governance structure was stable again. And um, so each city's had its own challenges, but then there's certain things that are common no matter where you go. I want to explore those two things a little bit more, a governance structure and confusing financial documents, which, which I 100% relate to. I also do not have a degree in any kind of finance whatsoever. Um, but I guess working working backwards, um, the, the governance, you've mentioned that a few times. What in particular are you seeking to achieve with that? Like what's, what's the exact change there? The thing that people don't really appreciate, I think, is that different players have different roles. Our, you know, city managers are like the CEO of a corporation and the city council is like the board of directors. So every corporation in America practically Almost every nonprofit in America operates off of this kind of corporate board structure. Well, cities do too, um, but people don't know that. People actually think that we work like the federal government or the state government, and 
We all learned about executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. And people look at cities and try to put it in that same framework, and it doesn't work. It's, it's a different structure. So when city council members come into office, they want to do things like they see on TV, and, and they think being a good city council member is helping your constituent get their pothole filled. And it becomes like one-on transactional kind of basis that they, they approach the staff, well, can we fix this, can we fix that, short term. And they, in, the, in a good governance structure, you've got to spend at least as much time, if not more, on the long term, preparing for that future um, so that you, you see your problems coming and you address them ahead of time. That's the thing that I find um, most difficult in local government is trying to help elected officials um, come along to understand their role better and to be effective at it. Mark, I know we are, we're both uh, acquainted with Professor John Nelbandian at the University of Kansas, one of the real luminaries in the, in the field and a friend and mentor to many of us. And this has been certainly something he's talked about a lot in his career, this, this idea of preparing council members for their work. I'm wondering if, is there, um, with respect to the financial part of that, is there uh, maybe a different type of financial information that might help with that, presenting the budget, presenting the financials in a different way? Or is it just that council members just think of their role in such a different way that that the financial piece of it is kind of always going to be in the background, no matter how you try to engage them in it? There's several things that can be done and in good cities are done. You know, these days we call, we call the annual comprehensive financial report an ACFR. That document isn't very readable, but if if you take that document and you prepare relevant ratios and indicators and you plot them over time, um, you can actually do a visual presentation of the the health. Um, or at least the trends in your community, and you can actually get a sense for where you are. If other cities did the same thing and you actually had that kind of comparative data, it would go a long way toward helping um, elected officials understand what their financial records say. There's a, a fellow in, in California, uh, Michael Coleman, who came up with... Um, a matrix that cities can go through and do that. It's hard to get finance directors to do it because it's, it's work. Um, that didn't sound good, did it? Um, it <laughs> it's, it's, it's different work. I mean, they're already busy people doing a busy job and, and you come in and you say, oh, I want to have 20 indicators. Um, but, but it really would do a lot for the financial understanding of elected officials if they could get a more visual de depiction. The other thing um, that comes immediately to mind is that cities cities ought to benefit for the with the same kind of 20-year financial model that the bankruptcy court made us do in, in San Bernardino. It was hard to put together, but... Um, and it doesn't necessarily have to be 20 years. You can start with five and move to 10, but to have something that forces the look out into the future. 
Cities like to say they adopt balanced budgets. Yeah, the law makes us adopt balanced budgets. <laughs> <laughs> That's not something to brag about. But they need to understand what a structurally balanced budget is. And you really can't do that unless you look longer term. And um, so I think those kinds of fiscal models would be very helpful for every city, not just some. And then the last one I'll mention is that when people do their capital budgeting, they tend to create budgets that show what they have money for and what they're going to spend it on. They tend not to show what they don't have money for that they're going to have to spend money on. It's real hard to find a city budget, capital budget, that literally projects the cost of replacing all the traffic signal lights all over town. It just doesn't look like a big deal until you start realizing that in the next 25 years, all of them are going to have to be replaced at about 200 grand per intersection. People don't see that coming. And so there's a lot that we could do to make it easier for our elected officials to understand. Trite as it sounds, Mark, I'm wondering, uh, any advice that you have for aspiring professionals who are hoping to make the kind of difference that you've made in, in your career, particularly, again, as it relates to the kind of unique financial leadership that you've had to exercise? First of all, I want to say that uh, a city manager doesn't have to take my approach. In fact, most don't. Um, <laughs> and they still make big contributions to their communities. I, I watch almost jealously sometimes people who have worked in their communities for 15, 20, 30 years um, at the time they retire and they can look at their community and see all the things that they did and feel that sense of closure. So that's that's a meaningful way to live your career. And I, I feel good that I have at least the 20 years that I did in Beverly Hills to, to look back on. On the other hand, I've got a very capable, talented wife who has been willing to move and and take on new challenges herself. But if you've got somebody who's willing to do that, the opportunity to go into communities and help them is very rewarding. And I do think that it's, it's a path that uh, sometimes I wish more people would look at because I, I do think our profession owes it to the local government world to take on the diff, the difficult challenges. And uh, I'm proud of us when we do. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Mark Scott, longtime city manager in Southern California and uh, telling us all kinds of wonderful stories and some actually really practical advice for public money managers going forward. Thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to share your thoughts with us today. Hey, I'm, I'm very happy to have had a chance to talk to you and I appreciate what you're doing to try to help people around the country understand what we're doing in local government helping those of us who are in local government to do a better job. I know I've, I've leaned on Liz's knowledge and thank you for that. We all have. (laughs) 
Well, that was a lot of fun talking with Mark Scott, and um, I'm sure we could do multiple episodes just on on the stories he has to tell about all the different cities alone. Um, and I really appreciate what he uh, was talking about too, in terms of the complicated nature of financial documents. It relates to this week's ripped from the headlines, which is a column written by Gerard Miller in Governing.com, and it's called "More and Better Uses Ahead for Government's Financial Data." And he writes about the Financial Data Transparency Act, which we will call the FDTA because that's a lot easier to say. The FDTA uh, came out late last year. We've talked about it a little bit on the show, but it requires governments ultimately to um, produce financial records that are machine readable. And and the the whole kind of gist behind this is making it easier to consolidate and compare key financial pieces of information across governments, making it similar in some respects to what analysts can currently do with with corporations. And the government associations, after saying, no, this is going to cost too much money, are now, now that it's law, kind of moving forward and trying to work with the SEC on this. Gerard's idea was that associations should launch some kind of Code for America-esque competition in which private sector companies basically try to create the solution to this so, so the governments can use as uh, some sort of software or, or, or something like that that governments can use to produce their financial documents or to read their financial documents and then produce these machine-readable bits of information so I thought it was a neat idea and his point about kind of grabbing this, Gerard's point about grabbing this by the reins and, and really running with it is a really valid one. And and as I mentioned before, the, the government associations are starting to get really involved with how to make this work the smoothest way possible for governments. And the, the FDTA's whole point, I think it's Emily Brock recently told me it's it's a shell of a law because it's actually not that long. It just says we want this to be done, but there's no rules. There's nothing about it. And so that's why there's all this time now that uh, government associations and, and practitioners and, and people are getting involved with, okay, well, now we've got to do this. How do we make it work? And the point is so that back to what Mark Scott was talking about with financial documents, the this ACFRS being so difficult to read, government financial reports are sometimes hundreds of pages long and have lots and lots of different tables, lots of words on every page. Um, for, for your average person, they're not they're going to look at that and go, that's I don't even know where to begin. And so the FDTA would at least help pull out the most relevant pieces of financial information that show you the overall picture of a government's fiscal health that make it easier to access that information. And and how how and why and where that'll be done remains to be seen. But I think that overall point is is really important that when we have easier access to the data, we can make better, more informed decisions right now instead of finding out about stuff years after the fact and having to to go back and retroactively fix some mistakes. Yeah, it's really good points you make. And it's, I think, two things to really highlight. One, as you said, and uh, channeling Emily Rock from GFOA, that it, the, the devil really is going to be in the details here. As, as we're often reminded on this podcast, uh, implementation is policy. So you can, you can have a law, you can have a policy, but the way that it's actually carried out and, and a lot of those rules and details that are written as you go along become the, the real substance of the policy. And that's very much going to be the case here. There's still a lot to determine around who's going to make 
the whatever the the new required information is right? who's going to define that who's going to be in charge of determining what that kind of master list of of uh, financial information that you required to to uh, make available as a government will look like and the structure of it is it going to involve the governmental accounting standards board is it going to be something different there's just so much to be determined at the moment so that's really really important it, we have to watch this carefully but i think the other part of it as you were saying was was regardless of, of how it's actually implemented there's no question where the proponents of this of this law are coming from and, and that really is i think the 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 case that mark scott described really is in some ways the classic use case for lack of a better word of this information if you have built out uh, an xbrl or some other digitally compatible way of doing your financial reporting, it would make it very easy. In fact, maybe even potentially just kind of automated for somebody who wanted to look at those long-term financial trends, compute those ratios, think about the the trajectory of a city, would be able to get that information easily, easily access it and easily do that kind of analysis. And, And in so many ways, the comparison for this, it may or may not be a good comparison, but the comparison for this um, is to what folks do in, say, the equities market. If I'm an equities analyst, I'm, I'm analyzing stocks for a living, and the uh, quarterly financial disclosures come out for those publicly traded companies. Most equity analysts have uh, a completely automated system whereby the information is made available to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and you get your ratios and your financial analysis almost immediately. And I think that's the sort of system that a lot of people sort of dream of for what local government finance could be. The question of whether it's worth the time and effort and certainly all of the uh, rethinking of how financial reporting is done, that'll have to happen. I think the, the, the opponents of this have some really good points that they make. But when you focus just on what's possible and the need for that kind of information, there's a really compelling case to be made there too. And I think, again, Mark, what Mark brought up made very clear that the types of situations where being able to get that information quickly, accurately, to be able to to visualize it, bring it to life for decision makers uh, without that barrier of having to do that additional analysis, in some cases can make the difference between having that information and using it to inform a, a decision or not having it and therefore not having it inform a decision. And that's the kind of bad momentum that you get that leads to the sort of financial decision-making that you've described uh, quite a bit in your reporting. Yeah. It, it almost makes you wonder if we had the full picture, if policymakers had the full picture every time they had to make a policy decision, where would we be with pensions or, or infrastructure maintenance or any of that stuff if this, this was more built into the entire process? But if we start doing it now, then perhaps it'll help more down the road. Yeah, definitely. If you believe that that information matters, and uh, and many of us do, then... Let's make, it, let's make it available as soon as possible for all those reasons. <laughs> the Public Money Pod is a production of the Center for Municipal Finance at the University of Chicago's Harris School of Public Policy and is brought to you in part by our sponsors, Build America Mutual and the Government Finance Officers Association.